you know, I, I mean, I think anybody who um, anybody who's in the business of working directly with athletes, probably one of the most challenging things to do is to uh, become more scientific in, in the way that the, that that uh, that you work and to be a bit more data driven. And, and yeah, I mean, early on in my career, it was a real challenge. I was a um, grew up as an athlete myself and then uh, moved to the Olympic Training Center here. And I was right away exposed to uh, an incredible amount of sports science. We have this uh, legend in Canada, a guy named Dr. Dave Smith, call him Doc. He's now probably in his early 70s, but Doc, uh, you know, I mean, he's you've got these pictures of Doc uh, at the Sarajevo Olympics in 1984 with his mass spectrometer that he's brought into the athlete village. He was taking blood samples and doing all kinds of stuff that, you know, really for me was like my beacon for saying, like, how do you do good sports science and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and how do you do that in a way that has impact? This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpri. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpri's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has his PhD in medical science, his master's in exercise physiology. He's consulted and coached over 30 world and Olympic medalists. Currently, he's a director of sports science at the Canadian Sport Institute in Calgary. He does online education for strength coaches and sports scientists. He's also adjunct professor currently doing research or actively in research welcome to the show dr matt jordan thanks for having me appreciate the opportunity yeah thanks for coming on it's it's always nice to speak with people that are in it doing it um both academically and in an applied sense um i guess i'll just jump right in i i think i'd read one of your blog posts talking about early on you had difficulty trying to merge the stuff from the lab and the research side to your athletes. So I, I guess I want to ask what, how's that methodology kind of evolved over time and, and how do you do that? Uh, you know, I mean, I think anybody who, um, anybody who's in the business of working directly with athletes, probably one of the most challenging things to do is to, uh, become more scientific in, in the way that the, that that uh, that you work and to be a bit more data driven and and yeah I mean early on in my career it was a real challenge I was a um, grew up as an athlete myself and then uh, moved to the Olympic Training Center here and I was right away exposed to uh, an incredible amount of sports science we have this uh, legend in Canada a guy named Dr Dave Smith call him Doc. He's now probably in his early 70s, but Doc, uh, you know, I mean, he's you've got these pictures of Doc uh, at the Sarajevo Olympics in 1984 with his mass spectrometer that he's brought into the athlete village. He was taking blood samples and doing all kinds of stuff that, you know, really for me was like my beacon for saying, like, how do you do good sports science and mm -hmm. and uh, and how do you do that in a way that has impact? Um and I'll have to be honest, like it was a struggle as a strength and power coach. I really, it really took me a while to navigate those waters. Um, and uh, really a couple of keys to unlocking 
uh, unlocking the potential is, you know, number one, you know, we are, we have to sort of, we have to learn to think about like a scientist. And that's something that I've written a lot about in my blog posts is, you know, a, a scientific mind. And it doesn't mean that you're, you're trying to do, you know, research studies when we train, cause that's not feasible, but you've got to have that scientific mind. You've got to understand the basics of measurement because that would be the biggest problem I would have had, you know, starting off in, in my career was my measurements were just not accurate enough. So I, you know, I'm trying to see these small changes in my athletes. And meanwhile, the noise is like three times bigger than that small change that I'm looking for. And so the downside of that is that you, you, you never really pick, pick up what you, what you care about. Um, and then I'll say the third thing that was really a good key for unlocking the potential for me was getting just kind of a little bit of experience in, in working with data because, you know, for, for where I started, you know, using Excel and hand bombing, you know, graphs or, you know, trying to create stories, it was just like, you know, honestly, you'd collect data for an hour and you'd spend the next half a day trying to make something out of it. Um, and so a little bit of skills, I got a little bit of skills in a, in a, in a, um, it's, a, a, a actually free. You can download this off the internet. It's a program called R and literally the letter R, uh, for anybody who's in sort of data science or statistics, they'll know what R is. If you've never been into it, you're like, what, there's something called R, like literally R and, uh, you know, reality is it's a super powerful programming language. And if you can, you know, what I did basically taught myself is how to code and how to, how to work with data. And um, yeah, long story short is those three things really unlocked my ability to, as a coach, start using data more efficiently. And, and man, it's, it's been a, you know, it's been a big part of what I do. And it's a massive part of our work at the Institute these days uh, is, is, is a data-driven approach. I feel like whenever I speak with, um, I'll say sports scientists as an umbrella, everybody has their own little, you know, kind of specialization. Yeah. It, it always seems to be, a struggle to get all of the data you want. And like you said, filter out that noise. I, I think particularly um, a few weeks ago, I spoke with um, a guest who is at basically the Olympic training center in Australia and she's studying uh, swimmers. So it's like notoriously difficult to try to get like, you know, power data on them and all these kind of things since they're in the water. And it's, it's not, it's not a nice kind of, uh, medium to work in to try to get that information. So it seems like more than half the battle almost is just collecting the data accurately to begin with. Oh, I mean, yeah, I, it, it's huge. You know, I mean, I, I, uh, one of the things that we, you know, uh, I think through, through our, through our Institute, but a lot of, a lot of through my PhD work as we, um, we really brought to the community of high performance training, strength and power coaches, uh, sports science, and sort of that, you know, elite environment. We, we were one of the groups, not the only group to really start to develop this uh, dual force plate system. And so mm -hmm. you have a force plate underneath, underneath each foot and you have people do jumping and squatting and all this other stuff. And what you can do is you can tease out these asymmetries, um, these force time asymmetries that allow you especially around injuries, which is actually where I spend the bulk of my time these days is dealing with athletes with ACL injury and sort of helping them get back to back to sport, back to performance. And uh, it's amazing because you can use this system and you can, you can quantify these asymmetries. But I always say to um, people that I'm working with on this, because, you know, I'll teach courses on using them or, you know, be brought in to sort of help groups kind of implement it. And 
you know, I'm saying like, you know, it's the most important decision you're ever going to make is, you know, input around an athlete's health and safety as they're coming back. And imagine you had a force plate that all of a sudden started to uh, lose accuracy. And so now all of a sudden, because you got two force plates now, so you've doubled your error. And imagine now you're in a situation where the athlete's true uh, between limb asymmetry is 20%, but for some reason, one of the plates is broken and you register an asymmetry of 5%. And now you're going to go back and make a recommendation to your, you know, your, your uh, head of performance or a coach or whatever to say that this athlete's ready to go. And you've actually made a mistake because your, your equipment wasn't working. And, and, you know, I just come back to this as a cornerstone is, you know, if you're going to be um, using a data-driven approach, it is so essential to make sure you understand the accuracy of your instruments. And, and obviously there's situations there where, you know, our force plates, we use a, a brand called AMTI, which is a real well-known um, uh, brand of force plate. Um, we calibrate our plates once a month and we're within basically less than a percent uh, difference in terms of the true load versus our measured load with our, with our system. Um, and, you know, there might be situations like with wearables, because I actually work with a wearable company uh, called Plantiga out of Vancouver. It puts a, a IMU in an insole and measures, um, uses machine learning to measure um, uh, insights in your movement and health and whatnot from, from, the, from, the, from the basically the smart shoe or the smart insole. Uh, but there's a bit of a trade-off, right? Because it's a wearable, so the accuracy goes down. And it's not that, you know, I think it's more about for anybody doing this is you got to know what, you got to know how to, to, to evaluate accuracy how to monitor it so you know if your systems are changing and then you have to know like how to contextualize accuracy or measurement error in the context of being able to use a data-driven approach and i would agree it's not easy it's uh it's a uh, it's it takes a little bit of skill and if you skip over the step it, it it can make it really hard to uh to to understand where it all fits so yeah it's a key piece and i think in that same post i was reading it was um you were mentioning like part of the difficulty starting out was like the inaccuracy of the plates you were using. So yeah. was it simply a matter of time waiting for the right company to come out with the right thing? Or did you like take an active approach and say to, to whoever's place you were using, like, Hey, these are not accurate enough. Like, could we do this or that? Yeah. I mean, you know what it was, uh, honestly, Jesse, it was, a it was early days for me. And, and if you can, if I can rewind, you know, rewind back to that time in my life and in my career, I had just wrapped up, wrapped up my, uh, my master's in exercise physiology, but it was the real focus was more muscle physiology. I was actually looking at the effects of vibration on, on neuromuscular function. So I had a vibration plate and I was, okay. you know, doing EMG and nerve stimulation and looking at, um, you know, basically voluntary activation of the quadriceps. It was kind of a cool little study, but anybody who's done graduate work, you'll know, like you get it grilled into your head about how to make sure you're, you know, calibrating, checking your equipment. And then you get out and you're like, huh. I'm done, right, so to speak. And it wasn't that the plates were in uh, had low accuracy. What happened was we got these we got these plates that were cost effective, uh, cheap, basically, right? Yeah. Um, they're by a company called Pasco, and they're these little foot plates that are about a foot by a foot in terms of their their uh, dimensions. And the challenge with them is they're they were built for doing like high school physics education classes, so they're mm -hmm. not meant for, you know, I would say lots of wear and tear like we would put them through in our in our environment and what had happened was uh, one of our athletes had been jumping on the plate and had done a really hard landing on one of the corners and basically it tapped out the load cell and at that point it starts to drift and it's it, and it's broken basically i missed it so what had happened is i've been collecting data 
and and we I'd gone through the process of calibrating and making sure that everything was good when I got these plates, you know, right at the beginning. And I remember one day bringing this one athlete in. Her her name was Shannon Rempel. She was a, a speed skater, and you know, I I looked at the force reading. I'm like, what? She's saying she weighs about you know, well, this case it would have been about 30 kilos, and mm-hmm. you know, at the time she was probably you know, let's say I don't know. 60 kilos let's say she was but there was a really clear discrepancy at that point that i observed and i was like oh shoot like my plates aren't working mm-hmm. um and so i hadn't been checking it and it was you know i touched the hot stove and and, and burnt my hand so to say you know as a as a as a, a kind of general rule you should always be checking your equipment um but yeah i mean it was just w- the reality you know jesse was like the, the plates were great actually there's been papers published on them i always just say that they're not overly durable but okay you know, but where we are today, I mean, you know, as a, as a, you know, I run a, I run a, run a research lab out of the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary, which is, you mentioned that in the, in the lead, and it's one of Canada's uh, four Olympic training centers. And we've, I've got a, a really nice lab space now, and I've got graduate students who are doing research and we put them through a cool internship program and give them a scholarship and they get their degrees and whatnot. But, you know, now that we're in this lab and I'm actually directing students and we've got you know, a wireless EMG system and an IMU system and force plates and force handles and a really cool dynamometer to measure rate of force development and quad ham and hip strength and a leg press, like all this stuff that we can use for testing. It's actually, you know, we have to be very vigilant to make sure like all people should, if you're using data, a data-driven approach, just make sure your stuff working when you mm-hmm. collect data. Cause uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've made that mistake and it's, there's nothing more frustrating than that. I guess maybe that's the the key to most things though. Like if you have a large enough budget, you can probably find the most accurate equipment, but it doesn't always work that way in the real world where, yeah, you know, yeah, it's like you work with what you got and then you just have to make, make errors. But it makes sense why now you're, you kind of preach the, uh, you know, make sure you check your equipment, make sure yeah, you know, you yeah, know that it will work. It's accurate. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, it's funny, um, you know, so I did my PhD under a guy named uh, Walter Herzog. And if there's anybody on the, on the call or on the listening to the podcast who um, has ever heard his name, he's a world renowned biomechanist. And he's basically, you know, essentially at the, at the coal face trying to understand how skeletal muscle works, you know, so really basic science, but he brings this guy in named Jerry Pollock, who uh, is a researcher from the U S and, you know, he's, he's kind of, in the final part of his uh, academic and research career. Um, so he's had a long history um, of, of work and he talks about this story where he had this extremely sophisticated um, uh, uh, equipment set up at, a, at his lab that would measure the crystalline structure of muscle. So he could actually look at, you know, you imagine you go from a muscle fiber and from a muscle fiber, you go down to uh, these myofibrils that have, you know, actin and myosin and they're interacting to, to produce force and he could visualize them. And he talks about the day that he had to move lab space from one lab to another lab on his campus. And there was something to do with the vibration in the building. And after that point in time, he could never get the accuracy and precision back. And it basically stopped his research because he couldn't ever find the, the, the accuracy and precision to make the measurements that he was making. And you know, it's funny when you when you hear stories like that and then you think about our world where, you know, a lot of times we're like, oh, well, you know, it's just you're just testing athletes. Right. But you really need to you really need this stuff because, you know, if if a, if, 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 if a number changes, you, you need to know that it was real. And, 
you know, you need to be able to contextualize, like, is, is that change that we saw, you know, so the dot goes from here to here, is that change meaningful? And uh, another guy who's written a lot about that is Will Hopkins. And there's, there's lots of, you know, lots of people who, who, who've talked about how to, um, how to contextualize change and, and, and whatnot. But uh, yeah, it's certainly, um, it's a big part of it, right? And you got to just drill that into everybody's minds when they're students and stuff, because it's a skill if you take it forward with you, it's, uh, it really helps, um, it really helps down the road. Well, and it's like, not even just from the per performance aspect, but we think about like, whenever I talk with uh, people doing research, the number one problem is getting enough participants for a study in the first place, right? So then your end number is already low. So it's like, even if you find st you know something statistically significant, it's like, well, how applicable is that to a large group? And then compound that with where your instrument's accurate, which could produce uh, you know, false positive or false negative. And yeah. then <laughs> you end up with this like cascading effect of, are, are yeah. we actually accomplishing anything? Well, heck, and you know what, you asked me the question at the beginning, like, you know, I think you, how did you phrase it there? You know, I, so I wrote about how to become a bit more scientific as a coach and my struggles with it. You asked me for some tips and I gave three things, but you know, maybe the fourth thing I should have said and, and put it to top of the list is, as a, as a coach, you don't, you're not, you're not doing population science. You know, no. it's not, you're not trying to look at the effects of, you know, does, you know, does baking cause cancer? Like that's not, that's not the type of inquiry that you and I care about, right? What right. we care about is we've got, you know, we've got this concept of a, a general population or a distribution and, and that person that we're pulling off as an elite athlete is potentially an outlier. Like they probably don't respond like right. the average. And we've got this single person over time. And what we're, what we care about is, um, what we care about is being able to measure, quantify, track, and evaluate how that single person, that N equal one case study, mm -hmm. how's that person tracking over time? And, and really ultimately it's a whole like I always say, it's like we're stealing things from science so we can do that type of inquiry, which is, you know, oftentimes these small groups or one person. And, you know, I, it's, a, it's kind of a funny thing, right? Like when you think about it, I like to think about the world sometimes as a big bucket of blue chips and red chips. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can imagine, you know, um, um, uh, something like, let's say, bacon and cancer. Bacon increases your risk of cancer, let's say, by 50%. But let's say it's a very rare form of cancer. So you got a thousand chips in a bucket. There's one red chip. A 50% increase is alarming when you read it on a, on a headline. But really, that's adding an extra half a chip in this big bucket. You right. know, and a lot of people would be like, well, that's not really. I'd, I'd still reach in there and, you know, run the risk of pulling a red chip. You know, just enjoy a, li a little bit of bacon now and then. Um, but, yeah, in a very similar way, I think, when we're when we're talking about um, when we're talking about athletes is we, we care about things that are our big effects. And one way to think about it in my mind is like, you know, it's like how many just back to your point, like how many subjects do you need to have to show statistically that moms are bigger than their babies? You know, like so you don't need a thousand moms and a thousand babies to show that there's a difference there because the effect is huge right. and the variation is very small. And, and, you know, if you actually do a power calculation, you need about three or four bombs and babies actually in each group and to, to show that, that effect. And so, you know, I would agree, right? Like what we care about are things that are big effects. We don't want these little itty bitty things where we're talking about this little minute effect that might have this little thing possibly what right. we care about 
training athletes are the big rocks in the bucket because that at the end of the day, if you, you know, it's what usually makes the difference. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough world, right. You got to steal from science, but we got to remember, we're, you know, if we're in that business of working with athletes, we're coaches first, we got to connect with people. We got to be able to create buy-in all those things are so much, you know, they're also so valuable and so important in the, at the end of the day. So basically kind of wonder since, since you are, you know, actively engaged in research, how do you choose what you're focusing on? Are you thinking predominantly about, you know, these are my athletes, these are the problems they run into, let's look into that? Or is it, or is it more of a, you know, I'm, uh, I don't want to say, mentally interested in this thing for no other reason than I find it interesting? I mean, you know, I think, I think that, um, you know, the, the best, the best scientists I've come across are able to string together, um, a, a, a line of thinking and a line of inquiry over their careers that really kind of advances a topic and advances, a an understanding around an area. And, and, um, I, I, w- I would just say as well that in addition to that, we've also got the flip side because I work at the Olympic training center and, we are tr- constantly trying to find innovations and, and new ways of doing things to help our sports win medals. So, you know, in, in that, in that ladder bin, when you're, when you're really, you know, sitting down with a coach and you're, and you're looking at a sport and you're trying to figure out where can you squeeze a percent of performance out? Sometimes these are very targeted projects where it's like, Hey, if we could design, uh, a bobsleigh that looked like this, or if we could teach a, a speed skater to skate like that, or we could, you know, um, use this training in a, it, like we would be sort of like adding for this very specific example, a little bit of bandwidth to hopefully improve performance. And, and no doubt those are projects that we do all the time, but where my, where my research is today is, um, you know, what I, what I'm interested in, um, at a whole body level are all the factors, um, basic factors that, that affect how muscles make force. And what I care about and what we're, we're primarily looking at is developing better testing, testing methodologies for athletes who are coming back after ACL injury. Um, that's been the big focus. So knee injuries and particularly what we're doing is, you know, surgeons do their, their great work. And then you've got the physiotherapists doing their great work. And at some point, this person is nine or 10 months post-surgery, they get back to sport. But what's really interesting, uh, for example, one sport that I work really closely with, it's alpine ski racing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny that it's going to be like 18, 19, 20 months, 24 months after surgery where they actually hurt themselves again. That's where the window is typically. So there's this window way after you've had your surgery and you're back in sport where you actually have to be really working with somebody to get them back to performance. And what we find is many athletes don't get back to performance. They get back, you know, to functioning, they look okay, but there's a gap there. So my, you know, to answer your question specifically about research is we're doing a, you know, we, we develop better testing methodologies. We're developing ways to forecast recovery after injury so that we can make better decisions. And, and ultimately we're, we're looking to develop better training methodologies and, um, and nutritional methodologies to help, um, ensure athletes get back to the level of physical uh, preparedness uh, that they need to be at in order to get back to sport. So that's the real focus. You know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm a strength coach first. So I, you know, I care about strength, power, rate of force development. I care about how athletes take these capacities, but then express them importantly in their sport. 
because it's not all about making somebody like a bodybuilder or a power lifter or an Olympic lifter. Like we need to take them and allow them to, you know, develop capacity so they can express, um, express this in, in whatever environment they're in. So it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool, you know, cool thing that we got going on uh, for sure. But that's the main theme of our research. See, and I had read, I had read you about you mentioning that, that kind of elongated timeline for re-injury um, with your skiers. And I'm glad that um, you have some data about that because I know, um, so I do another show, so to speak, where I talk about running on, on the YouTube channel. And I, on some of the injury-related ones, I've mentioned um, or given the advice that you're, when you're rehabbing something, even a minor injury, it could be six months of continuing with it, even after you feel perfectly fine. And that, that comes from my own just experience being injured. I don't know how many times over the last 20 years. Um, and just knowing like those things just take a long time and I don't have any, you know, I'm my own case study. Right. So it's like, I don't have, I haven't been collecting data and being diligent about doing like a daily workout journal. So I don't have that information, but it's like, I know, just from experience that like for instance my uh senior year in college i pulled uh my left hamstring pretty bad and basically i missed out on the national champ qualifying for the national championship because of it and that injury still bothered me i could every once in a while for years on a couple of years on and it's like it theoretically everything's fine should be fine but i found that pattern to be consistent regardless of what the injury was, and sometimes even if it wasn't severe. So um, just from a personal uh, sigh of relief, I'm glad somebody has some data that says that's yeah. something we need to look at. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I can, I can, I can tell you that, um, you know, injuries, especially, you know, especially big ones, you know, people who've had ACL injuries and people who've had, uh, you know, big, big leg fractures or whatever, whatever that might be, big hamstring strains. Um, you, you definitely see a long, well, not in all cases, but you definitely see a long-term impact on basically how you self-organize. And, this has been an area of, of, of uh, inquiry for me that has been both sort of um, academically, philosophically, and also from a coach standpoint, uh, been of great interest. But there's a, a body of, of science called dynamical, dynamical systems theory, which is, is talking about how, how, do, how, do, how, do, how do dynamic systems, which we would be a dynamical system, right? We're, we're responsive, we're adaptable. How, how do how do patterns emerge? You know, like how how is it that things happen? And, and the way they've always kind of visualized them in these in these more fundamental um, uh, uh, papers and, and and books, they've they've sort of fun, they've sort of talked about this idea of an energy well. You know, you've got this energy well, and it's it's stable. And so um, um, the stability that you get into after an injury, whether it's a limp or a way of moving or uh, a reduced bandwidth or degrees of freedom in terms of your ability to solve problems, it becomes a stable solution space. And so even after you've kind of come back and you've given it time, some people just get stuck in this, in this space and um, it becomes extremely difficult to get them out. And so what I, what I, what, what we sort of like hinge our, 
our work on is that I always say it's like uh, kind of coming back to your, your, your line of scientific inquiry for the coach. You know, you've got deductive reasoning, kind of start with the literature and you have a hypothesis and you gather data and you analyze, synthesize and arrive at sort of an understanding or a conclusion. But an inductive approach where you're making observations and you're looking and then you're arriving by observing towards a, a, a hypothesis or a hunch to explain, you know, what what is what has been observed. It's oftentimes how we're working, right? Like we're, you know, if, if you have an injured athlete, I, I say it's like, guys, you're like Sherlock Holmes. You know, you're coming to the scene of the crime. You got your magnifying glass, you got your uh, DNA kit, you got your fingerprint kit, and you're going to go and look for clues because you're going to try to arrive at a plausible explanation for who killed the butcher. Mm-hmm. In this case, you know, it's not who killed the butcher, but it's why is Jesse continually moving in such a way or 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 expressing things like this? Um, consequent to this hamstring injury that he's, that he sustained, you know, I'm going back, you know, hypothetically back in your, in your, in your former days, but that's, that's the idea. Right. And, and what, what, what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to understand to the best of our ability, like what are the constraints that are causing the movement to be shaped a certain way? And then how, what levers can we pull to get the person out of that energy well and into a place where they've got that, that, that those, uh, um, more normal patterns restored. Uh, and, and that's tricky, but I think it's at the end of the day, um, with these more complex questions about how do you get the person back, especially when they're stuck after, you know, an injury, it really takes a team and it takes a, a multi-view uh, approach to, to function. So if we're looking at those athletes that, you know, the, the skiers that have that uh, high, I'll call it recidivism, but it's really just rate of re-injury. Yeah. Um, at that, like, what are we going to call it? It's 18 to 20 month mark. Was that accurate? Yeah. 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 Is, it, is, is it simply a matter of saying, okay, the tests that okayed that athlete to get back to performing, we need to do those same tests until 24 months or is there a, a different protocol or is there, have you developed any ideas or systems to put in place to help that, like pre- prevent that re-injury? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so <laughs> it's funny because, um, you know, the emerging data that we have on the kind of, and I'll use an example of an ACL injury, the standard, the standard of, of practice these days um, is to use these functional tests that are easy to do in a clinic environment, right? So single leg hop for distance, triple hop, crossover hop, whatever. And you measure mm-hmm. either with a stopwatch or a, a you know a, a measuring tape on the ground performance. Um, the the challenge there is is kind of twofold. Number one you're measuring this person at a single time point, nine or 10 months, and then oftentimes people don't do it again. Um, and number two is that if you're, if you know you need to jump to the same distance on both sides, most athletes can hide their deficits, compensate and achieve the performance benchmark while masking the real problems that they have. So they pass the criteria, but they actually are just hiding what it is that's holding them back. And so I think you're right. It's kind of a twofold thing there. And, and, um, you know, it's funny, like the other day I was listening to the radio and, um, farmer, farmer's almanacs are coming out right now and they're starting to do their predictions for whether it's going to be a cold winter or a warm winter. And, you know, it's, it's funny, like you, you listen to this kind of forecast, like, oh, well, we're expecting it to be a very cold winter this year for a variety of factors. 
And, you know, but the real reality is like the, you know, forecasting the weather, you know, um, it, it, it's pretty good a couple of days out, you know, but as you go mm-hmm. further out 10 days, 14 days, three months, you know, it just gets more and more variable. And, and to your point is that when you're, when you're looking at monitoring athletes after injury, it sure is a limitation to be able to just bring them into a lab uh, once um, or twice over their recovery and to hinge all of their recovery on these single time point discrete assessments. And so um, it's, uh, it's absolutely something we need to get better at. And that's part of the work I'm doing with this uh, insole company in, in uh, Vancouver, Canada, mm-hmm. uh, called Plantiga. It's actually amazing because with machine learning, you know, and, and I mean, to start off, you've got a, a smart insole. Now you can basically collect data every time you run, every time you bike, every time you walk, every time you jump. You can throw them in your shoes when you're on hikes, when you're playing open activities. And the machine learning algorithms are starting to be able to learn when you're walking, when you're running, when you're jumping, when your foot is on and off the ground. It can give you biomechanical measures from that. And importantly, is it can start to predict that your patterns are starting to look like somebody who's injured or somebody who's not. And so that becomes extremely powerful. And it's, I think it's going to be the future, Jesse. I think we're going to have, you know, we're going to see that probably as the next few years emerge that these wearables are going to allow us to your point to capture people when they're at their highest risk and to do it more ubiquitously. Um, and so that's, uh, that's exciting. I think an exciting prospect for anybody who's uh, either an avid runner, endurance athlete, um, you know, weekend warrior, Olympian, whatever your, whatever your, uh, your, your, your badges that you wear in your chest. Um, there's going to be, um, I think there's going to be great advances in that field. I just feel like, like we've come back to the data, right? It's, I feel like, and maybe this is just me being an optimist, but I feel like as humans, we can figure many of these things out, even these highly complex systems, um, our bodies, the weather, if only we can have enough data about enough things, figuring out, yeah. you know, what data is important, what's not. And like you said, if you if you only have the ability to test an athlete one or two times, you know, there's obviously the mental aspect where they could psych themselves up to meet the criteria because they know, hey, I want to get back to training. And all I have to do is just get through this one little thing and like, you know, Dr. Jordan's going to let me go and it's going to be it's going to be fine. But if. Like with the, I mean, that's why I definitely wanted to ask you about Plantiga as well, because that's giving you data all the time. And, and you know that as much as high performance athletes are on and in the zone day to day, there's always going to be points when they're not. Like nobody is 100% in the zone all the time, always going to be able to compensate for things. And I feel like if you can just have that essentially, nonstop clock of data collection, like you're going to start to see patterns emerge that tell you those things. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's it. Right. And I think that the, the reality, Jesse, with these things is they are complex. It's like the weather, right? Like how, what, what is influencing the weather? Well, there are, um, let's just say internal factors related to weather systems that are, you know, probably occurring, via how these systems are self-organizing and things are occurring. There's probably some human involvement, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Global, global warming, climate change is certainly 100% a 
something that uh, we are we are uh, are, are contributing, uh, you know, ourselves and, and obviously affecting our, our climate. But you know, it's it's all this stuff, right? So it's hard to it's hard to um, it's hard to study this stuff when you've got you know incomplete data or when you've got I don't know. I did a I, I brought you into the you know into the weight room and I measured your strength on your left side and your right side and I you know and I and I use that as my sole part of the equation. Um, but you know I, I I would I would argue that um, you know I would argue that we are going to have to start treating a lot of this stuff with the complexity involved in order to get there. Uh, but I still come back to the idea is that if I am not looking for it, I'm, if I'm not measuring it, I can't change it. And I've just got an, an athlete of mine that's um, uh, coming back after an ACL injury. Um, I have them do a single leg jump test. I measure that they've got a 20% a different side to side, you know, Hey, whether or not that's predictive of an injury or whatever, you know what I think? Hey, you've got one limb that's at a deficit. I can prescribe training that can actually make you have better strength in that side that's deficient. And if I if I do that, maybe, you know, maybe it opens up bandwidth. You're going to perform better. You've got, you know, now you've got, you know, two legs that are capable of doing the same things. And I always say, like, you know, even, you know, we get hung up on injury prediction, but just if you put your coach hat on, you know, there is value in, in finding, finding things that could make an athlete better, help them perform, you know? So I still always say that there's value in some of the stuff that we do. There's tons of value, routine screening, routine testing, um, even though it's not maybe going to be, you know, giving us the best predictive model for injury. But at the end of the day, I don't know if we really want to just predict injuries. I think what we care about are finding the things that are being kept from us as coaches so that we can give people the right type of training that's more individualized, more specialized to help them get better in their sport. And if we prevent a couple injuries along the way, fantastic. Um, yeah, so it's a big area though. Kind of along those lines, um, it's like when I'm doing research, I don't typically have very pointed questions, but one of the things I did want to ask you, um, and it sounds like you've kind of already answered it, is uh, because because your focus is both on performance and you know, you're looking at like uh, ACL injuries and the effects on training and all those kind of things. Um, and because you're at the, you know, Canadian Sport Institute, obviously trying to get medals. If we, I basically want to know is injury the biggest limiter to increasing group performance. So like as a cohort, Olympians, if we could reduce the rate of injury by 50%, would we see world records being broken or, or a, a larger cohort approaching those times or measures, I guess I should say, because it's not always times. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, you no, know, it does. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think what, I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, tough <laughs> it's a question. highly speculative it, question. Yeah. But you know, but what I can tell you is it's kind of interesting that uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Dustin Nabbins, he's the, he's a, he's a great guy. He's a VP of uh, research innovation, sport medicine at uh, the U S Olympic training center in Colorado Springs. Um, awesome guy. Um, well researched doing his own work. And it's funny, they've got some interesting statistics from Olympic performance and it's funny you know, you'd think it was in, well, I mean, I care about injuries and I, and I, and I obviously spent a lot of time there and certainly they're a problem, 
but you know uh, what really kind of hits hard with with those programs are you know illnesses right like flus and colds and stomach flus that run through and and all that stuff and they're far 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 more um at least on dustin's data based on dustin's data far more uh negatively impacting of, of performance and i think that that's maybe where um that that question could potentially have an answer um but i would also say that collectively and i and i know this from sports like you know being in, in alpine ski racing like we you know we don't have we don't have 30 skiers behind the top skiers to be able to fill a gap if somebody's injured like it's not like you know nhl like hockey in canada's you know massive we've got tons of great hockey players but a lot of times in these sports you know we've we've got a small we've got a small group you know and we've we've invested years into these athletes years of expertise and training and development and so I think at the end of the day with this stuff is that, you know, injuries happen. They happen frequently enough that it is important that we do something about it. And certainly your odds of success in sports that are very competitive and also uh, in which, you know, we have very thin pipelines, they are 110% strengthened by having a robust plan around mitigating injuries getting athletes on the field to play physically prepared, mentally prepared, so they can handle the, the, the stressors of sport. We call it um, the healthy baseline, fit to train, fit to compete assessments, mm -hmm. super key. And, um, you know, again, where my, my work comes in now is, okay, but we're still going to get injuries because you can't, you're not going to fix them all without those strategies, although I think you can do a great job of bringing them down. But when you do get hurt, how do you manage that person to help them get back um, at the right time and with the right strength and the right capacities to be able to meet the demand. So, you know, you, you need a strategy. And, and um, I think, you know, I'll go on a limb and say, Jesse, to in answer to your question is that I think collectively um, for a group, it, it is absolutely imperative for, for, for there to be strategies. Um, I'll just maybe round out, round out your question with one more, I had a really interesting um I was uh, presenting down at the Vail Sport Injury uh, Conference a couple months ago, and they had uh, Dr. Roald Barr, who's a, a professor and a sport medicine physician in Norway. Mm -hmm. And he was presenting on what they're doing is Norway is absolutely just, you know, dominating on the winter side. Um, it's amazing. Uh, small country, you know, punching way above their weight. And uh, he just talked about the 2006 Olympics. He said, we went to the games. And we got destroyed and they didn't get destroyed because they weren't physically ready to go. They got destroyed because people got sick and people got hurt. And that's what their data shows. And they had a strategy after the 06 game. So 2007, they, they, they aimed to fix it. And so they put injury surveillance in place, strategies in place, and they've got a system. And you know what? Their system has made a massive difference. He actually so, showed some of the data from 06 to 2010 to 2014 to 2018 dramatic improvement in injuries and illness at the games. And, uh, you know, the correlate there obviously is a massive amount of success, uh, in terms of performance. So they're hand in hand, gotta be, you gotta be healthy if you're going to perform at the highest level. And in, in my opinion, let's just, it, it goes along with something I, I preach all the time to and on the running show that I do. It's just like consistency is key. Like it's, you have to be patient and you have to be consistent. And the thing that knocks you off from consistency the most is injury and illness. So that's yeah. why I think about if 
if it were possible, which it's not, to just say nobody's ever getting injured or ill ever again, I feel like we would see like a massive shift forward in how fast all fields are going regardless of sport because then you have continuous growth towards maximum genetic potential in all of your athletes versus being set back by external events or I think in in one of your blog posts, I think it was the the kind of weather predictive one you're talking about not being able to compensate for all factors like a wet field or icy conditions or something that's, you know, outside of our control. So it's like, if you, if you can eliminate all those things and allow the, the entire cohort of humanity, I guess we'll say, um, or it could just be Olympians to to propel towards their genetic potential without those externalities. It seems like you would see, you know, that that big increase. And and maybe um, the Nordic team is at least I'll call it a case study because it's small small group. Maybe that's evidence pointing that direction. Yeah, it, I I think it is, um, and I just know that when it comes to burden of injury and burden of illness, whether you're talking about a professional team, you're talking about an Olympic team, military groups, um, firefighter, police force, all these physically demanding jobs uh, and professions and endeavors. Um, yeah. Managing health and readiness are, are, are important. And um, I, I don't know of any organization that's not, pushing hard on this. The challenge that I see is I don't know how much all of our efforts have actually moved the needle towards making it better. You know, like think about the NFL. I I mean, I don't know a guy, Canadian guy, you you probably have heard his name, Derek Hansen, who was, he's a speed coach from, from Vancouver, but he's, he's, um, you know, he keeps this tally that he started, uh, you know, he starts every beginning of every year with NFL, you know, the tick box for ACL injuries and this mm-hmm. post a couple weeks. Here we go. Here we go, gang, you know, and just showing boom, 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 the number of athletes blowing out their knees and it's already starting. And it, you have to ask the question. We've never spent more money on sports science, sport medicine, testing, all these things. It's never been more uh at the front of our minds yet it sure seems statistically like injuries have stayed relatively stable and so i think when you look at the studies it's what you realize is it's probably not um it's not complicated stuff right like number one um injury prevention training programs are have been shown at least in youth athletes and and in a number of different uh more sort of like lower level of competition uh, examples to be highly effective for reducing, you know, MSK injuries, um, you know, training loads. Like I, I, I always, I always say like, we know this anecdotally, if you've trained is that when you come back and you go back too fast, too hard, or you go too long without recovery, your body begins to break down the cycle of being able to adapt to load and recover becomes imbalanced and your, your recovery potential diminishes and your adaptive potential diminishes. And I know I have touched that hot stove uh, as a, a former triathlete. I grew up in my teens and, and early 20s competing in triathlon and then switched into kind of an avid, you know, a strength coach who lifted lots and did martial arts and all kinds of stuff. And all I can tell you is that I have made mistakes purely based on training load errors, like doing too much too quick, 
ramping up too quick, going too long without recovery and not just listening to, to my body. And I think in some ways, um, you know, we are, we, 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 we forget that there's a lot of simple things there. And if, if you know, I keep thinking, I always use the example, like imagine you're going to take your investment every month, you take $2,000 and you put it into your savings plan for your future. You know, in Canada, we call them retired registered retirement savings plans for you. Mm-hmm. You guys, it's the 401k. Right. Imagine if you just dumped, you know, you've met a financial advisor and he's like, yeah, I'll take your money every month, two grand, no problem. Um, uh, and you ask for a report back to, to see how your money is doing. And he's like, yeah, I don't give you a report. I don't track that stuff. I just, I just take your money and I just invest it. And Hey, you know, in 30 years, hopefully you've got enough to retire, but if you don't, that's your problem. And in some ways, when I think about training, I think about us prescribing exercise and training. It's the most important thing we do yet the majority of us have no number on what that is. And it's, and I'm not saying it's easy because I I'll be honest, I don't have numbers for every athlete that I've ever coached in my life. And i still believe I've had the opportunity to have some positive impact there, but I still come back to it. I'm like, okay, so if it's the most important thing you do, is it all just art? It's all just, you know, just wing it and hope it works. Or is there something to how we progress load and monitor athletes and, ensure that they're they're recovering and adapting and, and i think there's a lot of questions there that need to be answered still uh but certainly those are key elements if we're you know looking at ways to kind of mitigate injuries um it's a couple of really simple ways to do it right is you know it's not it's not um i don't think it's it has to be a a, a crazy solution you know you actually touched on something i wanted to ask you about you, you mentioned um touching the hot stove too many times by not listening to your own body, <clears throat> excuse me, it, there was a, a guest I had, Claire Zai. She's a competitive powerlifter, and she is also a, a strength coach for athletes in kind of her domain. And much like me, we like to preach rate of perceived exertion, RPE. And I, wonder, I wanted to know if RPE plays a role for you at all in your athletes because I think about it in the aspect of we're these highly dynamic systems, right? And our brain is the, you know, computer running them all. So it's, it's getting feedback that I guess I, I think about that feedback in terms of different signals. It could be emotional signals, you know, we're depressed or we're anxious or as a good example, um, early on in my triathlon career, I was swimming way too much for how developed my upper body was. And I got very anxious about going to the pool. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to get in. I didn't want to be there. And it was a, it was a symptom of overtraining. I got, I would get in the pool. I would get it done. My times weren't necessarily suffering, but I wasn't really progressing. And as soon as I backed off my load, that anxiety went away. So that's where I wonder if, if RPE has a place for you and like, like Claire's trying to develop a system with RPE with her athletes and trying to use that as a data point to, to get around this difficulty of us being able to collect enough data to figure out what should the load be, you know, what, what is going on? Yeah. I mean, you know, Jesse, absolutely. Like, I think, I think that what, what um 
what I realize, and again, this comes back to your original question, what are the things that, you know, if you're a coach out there and you want to become a bit more scientific, like what, where do you start? And, you know, 110%. And I, uh, I was, uh, after I, you know, kind of going back into my journey a little bit after being the triathlete, you know, I got into, you know, training, you know, all kinds of uh, combative athletes. So I had some mm-hmm. MMA athletes, a couple guys who went to the UFC. I trained a lot of boxers and, uh, I would go down to the boxing gym sort of more in the past decade just to train myself. And I'm awful, by the way, I'm, I'm not pr- trying to pretend like I'm a, I'm a street fighter or something I'm not by any stretch. Uh, but you know, I remember Doug, Doug Harder, great coach, you know, and he would, he would be everything, whether you're a beginner or one of his pros was all about mastering what he'd say the jab, right? Cause the jab sets your distance. It sets your timing. It sets up your other punches. It allows mm-hmm. you to have defense when you're being attacked. And, and I always am like, yeah, master the jab. Like you don't need to be doing the free, the crazy combinations. What you need is you need to have a crisp jab that sets things up because that's the starting point. And you know, in a very similar way, when you ask the question about RPE and, and getting these subjective measures from athletes, it is mastering the jab. And, and, you know, the value in that is that if you sit down every week, you have what you planned as a coach to do, right? So I wrote you a bunch of training, gave it to you. There's what I planned. And then there's what you incurred. And because what you incurred is so dependent on all those factors that you talked about, right? Like, how are you adapting? I I always say, um, working with ski racers, um, we will go to the bottom of a downhill course. And it's amazing. You watch the top 30 athletes come down. They're exhausted. They're tired. You know, they've had a, you know, tough two minute run. And then you get into the forties and the fifties and the sixties in terms of the rest of the athletes coming down and invariably your last five or six athletes are young skiers, this is their first downhill run ever in their life. And they come down and typically they burst into tears because it is terrifying to throw yourself off a mountain at 130 or 40 kilometers an hour and risk your life, basically. And, and they're, they're, they're petrified. So if they did two minutes, they both skied the same run, I can guarantee you that the physiological and psychological load for athlete number 60, that's their first run and they're bursting into tears because they're so scared. I can imagine, I can guarantee you the load on them is entirely different than the load on that person who came down third, because it's a completely different, uh, um, um, stressor on the system. And, you know, one of the best ways to capture that is, is using the RP method and Carl Foster, who is, um, you know, uh, he's an American from, um, uh, Milwaukee. He was a, he was a professor, uh, in, in exercise science and he worked, used to work with the U S speed skating uh, team. And I can, he's got a great paper in 1998 where he sort of validates the sessional RPE method. And I'll tell you today's day and age, going back from what Carl put out there in 1998 to today, where you can make a Google form $0, you can have your athletes every single day fill out. You know, I did a run. It was 60 minutes long. It was a five on 10 effort and they give you a couple of notes, um, it is so valuable to go back to those simple anchor points when you've started to amass data. And one sport that I've been working with for a long time, as I mentioned, was ski racing. And when I was working with the women's team from 2010 to about 2018, I've got probably 10,000 rows of data in my Google sheet from all of the entry points of these athletes over that time. And it's a, it's a bit crude. I get it. Sessional RP, it's a, it's a subjective report. But you know mm-hmm. what turns out? 
is you're a pretty good barometer of how hard that was. Right. I don't need to have, I don't need to have a fancy piece of equipment. If I ask you every day, how was that? You actually pretty good at, pretty good at estimating that load on yourself. And if I ask you questions about your anxiety, your stress, your adaptation, your energy levels, your soreness, I can start to see when you're like, you know, I'm not doing great. How are you sleeping? How many hours are you sleeping? We can start to see these trends. And, um, you know, I just got done, a, a um, with a, one of our, uh, one of our Canadian Alpine skiers had a real bad injury at a full knee dislocation. Um, and this athlete was just a crazy healer, a great, great guy to work with. Um, really, uh, really came to like him as I got to know him over, over his journey. But, you know, when we've got his data for the 14 weeks that he's coming back on snow in the winter and we've got, we can manage those increases in load and we can track his knee pain scale and we can look at how he's adapting. All of that is driven by the sessional RPE method. It's a, it's a great, it's a great tool. And it's so available. Uh, it's easy, right? How long, how hard, what was it? I always ask an energy level question too. So give me your energy scale from one to 10, 10's best ever. You felt amazing. One is the worst ever energy. And, you know, it's really interesting. And you'll know this too, as a, as a triathlete, that very often what ends up happening when people are maladapting to training stress is the easy workouts start to feel really, really hard. Mm -hmm. So you're doing these recovery sessions. You're like, oh my God, that was supposed to be like a nice, easy 90 minute zone one ride on my bike. But man, that felt like, that felt like the hardest thing I've ever done. And when you start to see these easy workouts become really difficult and energy levels are starting to decline and sleep starting to go down, they give you just enough nuggets as a coach to be able to be like, hey, I think we got an athlete who's not adapting to the stress as well as I planned. And what are you going to do with that? You're going to take that information. You're going to give them a call. You're going to have a, have a phone call. You're going to have a chat. You're going to make an adjustment. You're going to tweak because that's, you know, that's the whole thing is we're trying to make these micro adjustments to the plan, what you plan so that you can optimize adaptation. And um, yeah, certainly, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of the sessional RPE method just because I think it's accessible. It's easy. It's been validated. And yes, there's limitations, but you know, simple things done well, you know, like that's, Simple things done well, get your jab down. And then if your jab's not working for you anymore, maybe learn another punch. But right now a jab will, will probably do a lot of us just well, just fine to, to start this process off. So great, great question and couldn't agree more. Thanks. It's like I said, it's, it's, it's just something I, I've used and, and preached for over a decade now. So I, I always like to see, you know, how, how it comes into play for people like you or especially um, I'll say hard data focus, not the subjective measures, um, because I find value in it. I, you know, in, and in the, I'll say artistry of pacing and all of these things where it's like, it's internal measures it's how, how you feel and all these things. Um, but because I'm again, just a case study of one, I'm just myself. I can't live inside of anybody else. Um, you know, I don't know how that all applies. So anyway, as we're starting to run short on time, there's a question I'm asking everybody this season because it transcends sports and disciplines. So I'd like to ask you what you think the purpose of sport is. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can answer this question as a parent. I've got three boys. And um, I think that uh, physical activity is the, is the fountain of youth. And I think it's um, a lot of what ails us in our society, especially North America, comes down to a lack of physical activity. 
And um, from, from, from my perspective, sport is the gateway to physical activity. And so sport, first and foremost, fundamentally, uh, first and foremost, is allowing, allowing kids, and, and, and I believe you maintain the ability to learn skills uh, well into your 20s and 30s and 40s and beyond, um, sport is a gateway for developing physical skills, physical literacy that opens up the doors to being able to have, uh, to have physical activity. And, you know, I, I, there's nothing that makes me prouder than to uh, watch a Canadian athlete stand on top of a podium, you know, getting their Olympic gold medal and, you know, tears and all that stuff. Like it's, you know, it's a, it's an exhilarating moment once every four years and our country goes bananas. And I know Americans go bananas for their, for their athletes, but let's be honest, like, what do I want for my kids? I want my kids to grow up so that when they're in their 30s, their bodies feel good, they're healthy, and they can do whatever they want. They can play basketball, they can play hockey, they can play tennis. You know, they're not afraid to go pick something new up because they've got the physical skills and the physical literacy to, to be physically active. And I think sport's a great gateway for that. And, um, and, and I, I expose my kids to sports because I want them to have the literacy down the road to be able to do things that they want to do. And whether they make the NHL or Olympic, Olympic, Olympic level sport, I could care less. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, not on my radar. So that's what sport is for me. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, um, it's a uh, key part of our society. I think it's undervalued. And, and I don't know about the U.S., but in Canada, we've had, you know, we've had this sort of like, you know, I guess in some ways the the, the focus on performance has gotten very, very, um, um, big, you know, winning medals. And, and I like that. That's, that's my job. I mean, it's help athletes get to the podium healthy and safe, but, you know, I think that we've become, we've become, we sort of lost the sense of why we do this. And, uh, I'll go back to Norway, uh, because I mentioned them earlier. It's funny that their whole mission, vision, values, purpose as an organization, this is the Norwegian Olympic committee, and I'm going to probably get the exact wording long, wrong. But their, their reason they exist is to uplift the lives of Norwegians through sport. That is why they exist. So that's why kids are out when they're young and cross-country skiing and they're physically active because their goal isn't to just win medals, it's to uplift. And I think that sport, you know, for me has always been that vehicle. And I see it being that vehicle for people who are, um, you know, um, either, either um, marginalized or, you know, overlooked in society. And, you know, I see it being uh, tremendously beneficial for people who are, you know, you know, need to get fit and physically active for their health. Um, yeah, it's a great vehicle. Um, we got to we got to keep we got to keep making sure that we're doing it for the right reasons and, and, and teaching others the value of it. Good question. That was a good answer. I don't think I've had anybody answer um, quite in that fashion yet. So and that's why I love the question, because it's so open ended. Um, yeah. Matt, if people want to see what you're up to, kind of follow along with your career, your research, all that kind of stuff, where can they find you? Yep. I, you can follow me on Twitter. My uh, Twitter handle and my Instagram handle uh, is at Jordan Strength, J-O-R-D-A-N uh, Strength. Um, you can go to my website, uh, www.jordanstrength.com. Um, I do have, uh, you can sign up to my mailing list. I do have like I don't bombard people. Like I put out, you know, maybe every three, two to three months, I'll usually put out a, you know, a, a something that's going on, either stuff that I'm doing, courses that I'm running, because I do a lot of courses for uh, coaches and sports scientists. 
um, or something that might be of interest. So it's not, it's not just being driven out there, you know, constantly. So for people who don't like lots of emails, um, I get it. Um, but, uh, and then on Twitter, it's kind of the same, you know, any research that we're doing, publications that are coming out, uh, stuff that we're working on that are kind of new innovations. Um, it goes up there and it also goes on Instagram. So, um, yeah, please, if you, if you do want to get in touch or follow, that's the best way to do it. Sounds good. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.